Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode, you'll hear the final installment of a recording captured in 2019 at a Leadership Under Fire Summit in Annapolis, Maryland. This talk is a departure from the interviews featured on this podcast and offers a glimpse into how the LUF team approaches advancing leadership and optimizing human performance under fire during scheduled events and seminars. The presenter you'll hear in this episode is Jennifer Baker, who currently is the Director of Athletics and Recreation at Johns Hopkins University. She was promoted to the role on August 6, 2019. Prior to this, Jennifer served as Hopkins Senior Associate Director of Athletics since September 2017. Baker is a co-founder of Athletics Leadership Consulting, whose mission is to make leadership development accessible to all athletes, coaches, and organizational support staff. The group leverages athletics as a tool for leadership education as it designs and delivers original content that allows athletes to develop leadership and teamwork skills as an integrated component of their competitive experience. Baker graduated from the United States Naval Academy with a degree in aerospace engineering and was a member of the Academy's women's lacrosse club team. After the Naval Academy, Baker spent seven years in the Navy, including three as a pilot and four as a construction manager and facilities engineer. She later earned an MBA and a master's in mechanical engineering from Cornell. So during the afternoon of day one at the summit, Jen Baker, who is the director of athletics and recreation at Johns Hopkins University, took over the reins of the summit and led a very informative presentation. What do you want listeners to know before listening in? So Jen was a departure. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned earlier about the format. We wanted all of the conversations to largely be moderated, a little less formal than a, than, than a presentation, than a formal presentation. Jen had asked if she could run a workshop because she really wanted to kind of take the lead and create a dialogue, form a relationship, mm-hmm. right, with, with folks in the audience and kind of take them through a, a, a journey where she was able to reflect on moments of triumph, and, and failure in her own life, professionally and personally, while then in kind of encouraging folks in the audience to reflect on, on the same in their own personal lives. Yeah, she's a masterful facilitator. Yeah, she's, she's, very, she's very talented in that regard. Yeah, so the workbook that Jen references in this talk is available along with this summit package, and we definitely encourage people to use it. With that, let's hear from Jen Baker. All right. Um, first of all, thank you all so much for being here. Um, thank you to Jason for inviting me to be here. Leadership Under Fire is an organization that I became familiar with probably about a year and a half ago um, when I was introduced to Jason. And I'm just a huge believer in what it is that he's doing and in the difference that the work that he does and the work that you're exposing yourself here can make for you in terms of performance of, your, of yourselves as individuals, but also within the context of your teams. So I am fully cognizant of the fact that I am the after-lunch speaker. Um, 
I remember what it was like to go to that class after lunch in college, and I don't remember much of what happened in that fifth period class. So I will do my best to uh, keep this engaging and energetic for you. Um, this is going to be more of a workshop style. That, so that said, I welcome questions at any point. Um, it's, it's, there are moments where I'm talking kind of proverbially at you, um, but there's a lot of time and in your, in your workbooks, we're going to do a lot of reflection um, and then time permitting because I am cognizant of making sure that this session ends at, at the time that it's supposed to. You're going to be doing some talking to one another or at least some, some sharing with the larger group. So just to kind of stage set for you there. Um, so my name is Jen Baker. Uh, I, will not, I will spare you my life story, um, but suffice it to say that I'm, I'm here to talk to you today about how we go about cultivating personal uh, resilience, but then also as leaders, how we can help foster resilience within our teams. I do not have a PhD in this. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert, I'm not a mental health professional in any capacity, but I am a practitioner. And I've had three kind of what I would describe as very formative influences in my life. One, I served in the military. So for the first part of my career, I, I served in the military. Um, and then kind of the next phase of my career and the one that I'm currently in is competitive athletics. So I'm currently working college athletics. Uh, I'm a senior associate athletics director up at Johns Hopkins University. And as part of my work in and around athletics, I've come to focus and specialize on leadership development for student athletes, coaches, and then teams as a whole. So that's where I spend a lot of my time. The third influence is a little bit kind of different and maybe one you wouldn't expect, but it's yoga and the practice of yoga. Um, and so I, I will attempt for, to tie those three things together. And really what I want to do this afternoon is kind of offer you what I perceive to be best practices in building resilience, because all three of those have helped me to do that and have helped me to do so on teams that I've been a part of. And so I've tried distill that down. We talk a lot about resilience in, in general, but I've tried to distill it down more into action steps for you. So how, how do you take this back and put it into, into play with your own teams? So I've developed kind of what I would consider a framework that works well for me. Um, I encourage you never to take anything kind of as gospel, but really to think about it in the context of your own experiences and your own teams, and then think about how you want to adapt it, uh, if at all, and move it forward in your own teams. So that's kind of what we'll, we'll talk through today. We good? Anybody asleep yet? All right, feel free to tattle on people who fall asleep because I will throw things at them. All right, um, so hello. to start, you know, we're here to talk about resilience. What does resili resilience actually mean to you? And this is an audience participation question. So when you think of resilience, if I, if I ask you to say what resilience means, what does that mean? Okay, ability to return to a state of normal. What else? To what? Withstand. So kind of that enduring piece. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? How, how about, how do you recognize it in yourself and in others? Because we know it when we see it, right? What does it actually look like? What are some tangible things that you've seen that tell you, yep, that was resilience in, in action? Success? Calm amid the storm. How about after the fact? Because sometimes we, we go through these things and they happen to us so quickly that it's not a matter of staying calm or anything as we're going through them, but on the backside of it, that's when the, the real kind of 
rebounding needs to occur. What does that look like? How do we know when it's happened on the back end of something? Yep, to take those next steps forward is, is typically how I would characterize it. So it becomes this thing where we all have our own kind of intuitive understanding of what it is. And for each of you, when I ask those questions, my guess is something different popped to mind for you. So we all may see it a little bit differently. Totally good, totally okay, but the key is that we recognize it when we see it because that's the first step in building it is to understand what it is we're actually trying to build and what it actually looks like in practice. So to give you a little bit of my general philosophy on this, the first thing I believe very strongly is that resilience is a skill. And I would guess that all of you by attending this uh, believe the same thing. And by skill, I mean it's something that we can work on and practice and therefore get better at. It's not something that we're necessarily born with, although some of us I think are predisposed to being resilient. But more so it's, it's like, and I always liken this and I'm gonna come back, my world is athletics. How many of you played sports before? Fantastic, so I got a good audience here. All right, so. In sports, it's the kind of thing where if you have a very specific play that you want to make, the time that you're going to try that is not in the championship game. That's not the time you're going to try it for the first time. Instead, you're going to practice that over and over and over again every day at your daily practices. And probably a lot of those times, it's not going to work. But it's going to be OK because you're going to get better every time you practice it. And we're working towards it so that when you need it in that championship game, you have the confidence, at a minimum, to try it. And so that's what I think about when I think about resilience being a skill. It's something that we work on every single day when we don't actually need it. So that when we get to those moments where we do, it's not a one-off and we have confidence that we're gonna make it through the way we want to. I also believe that being resilient is something you are, not something you simply do on a one-off basis. So it really needs to become part and parcel of, of who you are at your core. My personal philosophy, so you understand kind of the way in which I view the world, one, I believe that nothing worth having ever came easily. I expect to work for things. I don't expect easy wins. It's great when they happen, but that's my, my automatic approach to things when I go into, into things. I also believe that nothing is impossible, that when we truly want something and we set it as our intention, that we can direct our energy there and we can get to where it is that we want to go. So I love when people doubt me. I love when people tell me no, and I would categorize myself as a perseverant person. And so by that character trait, I believe that I'm sort of predisposed to being resilient, and I do think that over time I have built, built a strong practice in it. But you have to understand that the way I see the world may not be the way everybody else on your team sees the world. And so getting a sense for what is their relative level of kind of internal perseverance ahead of time will help to stage set for you as you work with them on growing their own personal resilience. So I did not share my biography. Um, but I will give you a little sense of kind of my early life and, and how things started for me and, and how I've come to be here. So growing up, I did, not, I did not hear a lot of kind of reassuring messages. And I say that my mother and father loved me very, very much. But what they didn't realize at the time is that they were actually giving me messages that were counter to what I really had hoped to hear, but they were forcing me to become resilient in those moments. So I rewind all the way to when I was very young. I was told that I was not athletic. I brought home a B. This is what prompted this. In elementary school PE, I brought home a B. And I was told, oh, that's okay, you're just not athletic. So fast forward all these years later, I built an entire career out of being athletic and being in athletics. But in that moment, I heard that and I thought, I don't necessarily think I believe that. I want to be whatever they think I'm not. I want to be that thing. And so then fast forward to the time that I was 13. I think I was actually 14. So I decided that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy 
for college. This was my, my new lofty idea. And to be fair, if you had known me at that point in my life, military was as far from who I was, period. Like, I wouldn't walk to school without all of my makeup on, and this was my priority in life. I was very focused. I wanted to be a cheerleader in high school because that's what I saw on TV, and that's what you were supposed to be. And I had the opportunity to go visit the Naval Academy um, with a friend of mine. Her older sister was there. and. We had to go down to pick her sister up. I was spending the night at her house, and her dad was in my ear the whole time. Navy, Navy, Navy. And I'm thinking, dude, you're wasting your time. This is not me. Drove down, and remember seeing the campus kind of appear on the left-hand side of the car as we drove in the front gate. I was on that campus five minutes, and I said, this is where I'm going. And the reason, and I can look back now and reflect on it, is because it seemed challenging. It seemed difficult. It seemed like something not everybody could do. There was a lot of tradition associated with it, and I wanted to be that person. And so it was this aspirational thing for me in that moment. And I was kind of newly re-energized and excited as you can be about this at age 14. And my dad picked me up the next day and he said, hey, what'd you guys do? Did you have a good time? Dad, we went to the Naval Academy to pick up Christy's sister. Wouldn't it be cool if I went there and became a fighter pilot, like in Top Gun? What do we think dad's reaction was? Not athletic would have been complimentary in that given moment, uh, but no, in fact, that is not what, not what I was told. What's that? Yeah, he laughed. I would have preferred if he told me, no, you couldn't do that. He laughed at me, which was like the ultimate insult. And from that moment, it was like he flipped a switch. It's like, okay, the gauntlet has been laid. You don't think I can do that? I'm gonna do that. And I did not go there to spite my father or prove him wrong. There were, you, you can't make it through that place if you do something like that. Um, but that was really what sparked it when I looked back. And so when I think about kind of these moments in my life that have started to set me down this path of being resilient, that's one of the ones I think of. And so then I get there, right? All my hopes and dreams are coming true. I get there and that place is a four-year exercise in resilience because you get yelled at there. And I'm here to tell you, they're not telling you how awesome you are when you're getting yelled at. It's quite the opposite. And if you can't validate yourself, if you can't pick yourself up and help to pick other people up along the way, it's a real tough place to get through. And in fact, I would argue that the people who can't do that are the ones who don't actually make it through. So I get through that, and like I said at the very beginning, I told my dad when I was 14, I wanna be a fighter pilot like in Top Gun. I leave the academy, I get assigned to flight school. Again, all of my hopes and dreams are coming true. And I get to flight school, and I'm feeling real good about myself, and it turns out I suck at flying. Just not good at it. Um, requires a lot of hand-eye coordination that I, I played lacrosse, that was my sport. I had athletic hand-eye coordination. Not so much in a jet, as it turns out. Um, that thing moves kind of fast, and you gotta think faster than it moves, or it gets real hairy real quick. And my first five flights uh, in flight school, I was terrible. And in those moments, I literally said, this, this is it, I suck, I'm gonna quit. Resilience, bye-bye. Um, I said, I wanna go be on the bridge of ships because at least I won't suck at that. Um, and I shared this with a friend of mine who was further along in the program than I was, and he was hearing none of this. And instead, he took me down to the hangar. I had, my next flight was on Monday morning at 5 a.m. because we all do our best flying at 5 a.m. And he took me down the hangar on Sunday night and they had an aircraft set up in the hangar usually that was there for maintenance, but you could get in and kind of practice. And he made me sit in that thing for two hours. And for two hours, he made me fly my flight for the very next morning until I had it down pat. And in those moments where I started to doubt myself and in those moments where I wanted to give up on it, he put the procedure back in my head. He put the radio call back in my head. And what I realized from that 
was that when we are faced with the, the opportunity to be resilient versus not, a lot of times we're telling ourselves a story in our head about what's really happening in that moment. And that story will take up as much room as we give it. But when we can remove ourselves from the story and replace it with objective things, procedures, radio calls, things that we practiced over and over again, it allows us to recenter ourselves and take that first step forward. And what I really truly believe is that in resilient, we all have the, the predisposition, predisposition to be resilient. That first step forward is the hardest one. And so thinking about things we can do to take that first step forward will put us on that path to productivity. And we'll talk more about that um, today. But we get through that. It turns out I'm, great, I'm forever grateful. His name was Mark Franco. I, I always say his name publicly just to acknowledge what he did for me. But that was a leadership moment where he helped me to become resilient. And the way he did it was simply by making things objective. Making things objective, giving me reassuring messages, crowding out the story that I was telling myself, and instead replacing it with something that was thoughtful and practiced and something that I could do over and over again. So turns out that helped. I got a lot better at flying from that point on. Um, get all the way to the, the, like the final phase of flight school, which for me was carrier qualification, so landing on an aircraft carrier. Um, and that's kind of the story that I want to share in this moment. So this here, um, this is what's called a Fresnel lens, an optical landing system. So they have one of these on every aircraft carrier. Um, and this is what pilots use to determine where they are on the glide path to make sure they're actually, in fact, going to safely land a jet. So you'll see here that there is kind of this horizontal line of lights. And then in the middle here, and this is obviously one that's just set up um, not operational, but in the middle here, you have these three yellow lights. And those right there, depending on where you are on the glide path, you'll see them either above the green lights or you'll see them below the green lights. When they start to get low, at some point they turn red. Red is bad. We don't ever want it to be red. That means you're going to fly into the back of the boat. It's a very dangerous situation. And so in a perfect world, we kind of want to keep them either centered or like just slightly above. That's how you know you're, you're in the sweet spot. And there's four wires on the deck of a carrier. And the, the best one to catch is the number three. So if you fly it just right, right about here, you're going to catch the number three, right? And so the way you do that is you adjust power on the way up and down. So you respond to what you're seeing visually. You adjust power on the aircraft. That tells you where you are in your glide path. And you can kind of manage your way down. So as it turns out, I get really bad migraines. I didn't really know this. I didn't know they were migraines at the time. I just knew that every time I flew, I was getting a really bad headache. And what happened to me was that that slowed my visual processing. But again, I was all kind of unaware of this as it was happening until I kept getting feedback in my final week practicing before we went out to the boat that I was flying through down, meaning these lights were dropping low. And I was putting myself in a dangerous situation. So. Being the wise student that I was, I thought, well, I'm not seeing that happen, so I'm just going to guess. I'm just going to add some extra power at the beginning. And it turns out, all of a sudden, I was doing things right. So I felt this was validating. I was good to go. So when you go out to the boat, this is what it looks like. Not me, obviously, but just to give you a sense for kind of what the whole process looks like. So you're on the end. You get slingshotted off the end. Now you're flying. And you'll fly upwind just a little bit, and then you'll make a left-hand turn, and you'll fly basically a racetrack pattern. And then at the end of the racetrack pattern, you'll come back behind the boat. Here, Right here are those lights that we just talked about. And so the pilot now is making power corrections. 
coming all the way down, four wires kind of crossing the deck this way, and safely, it's what we call trapping. So safely traps. And if you watch it from the side, you have a hook, the hook catches the wire, good to go. So when you do this, and I'll just leave that on loop for just a second, when you do it, that whole racetrack pattern takes around 90 seconds or so. Um, so from the time you get shot off, you have about 90 seconds before you're touching down again. Not that much time, although it seems like an eternity from time to time. So you saw what happened there. Here's what happened to me. Missed the wire. Because I was guessing, and I added too much power. So first time out at the boat, you're already pretty nervous. Missed the wire. Missed it, not once, not twice, not three times, six times. Six times, which nearly gets you sent back to the shore. Um, but luckily on the seventh time, I actually caught it. So here's why I share that with you. Because that was one of my big key takeaways when I think back about what it means to, and what the military has taught me about building resilience. The time pressure is a big deal. When you miss that wire, you immediately take back off the end of that aircraft, that, that boat, you have 90 seconds to figure it out when you come back around. You don't have a whole lot of time to sit and feel bad about what just happened. Now, granted, not over the radio, but within the cockpit, I yelled some, all the words, all of them. Anything you can think of, right? You yell all the words, but then the reality is, you're still flying a plane, and you gotta get this figured out uh, before that 90 seconds is up, because you're coming around again. When you miss it six times, it's rough. It's real rough. Uh, confidence goes way down. Um, but again, you get back into the practice. It's the same thing as when I was sitting in the hangar, right? So confidence goes way down. I start telling myself a story. I'm never going to qualify at the boat. I'm never going to get the jet I want. I'm never going to get stationed with the guy that at that time that I was uh, engaged to, this and that. You start to spiral real quick. What brings you back is that procedure. So I didn't have a lot of time. And then on that downwind leg, I had to start going through a landing checklist. And going through that landing checklist quickly crowds that story out and allows you to start taking that first step forward. Took me seven times before I finally landed the thing. Um, and then from there, I didn't miss again because I had figured it out. But I was guessing, right? Always not a, not a good strategy. I was guessing with the power. So when I think about overall, I, I shared that just to give you context for what I learned about resilience in the military. So. No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. And this is something that I always come back to. This idea that we go into something and we plan and we practice for it, but the reality is that once we're in it, we have no idea what's gonna happen and we have to be prepared to flex. And so I choose this picture on purpose because the reality is that before this plane ever took off, there was a brief. And in that brief, they all talked about what happens, you know, what was gonna happen in it, and then they all jumped out the back. And as soon as you all jump out the back, you have no idea what's gonna happen but you have to be prepared to react and flex in that given moment. So there's an acronym that's kind of come into vogue of late that I like, so it's VUCA, V-U-C-A. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Meaning things are changing all the time, it's kind of gray, we don't really know what's happening, we don't know what the right path is forward. So this VUCA environment, the military is a VUCA environment, and I'm guessing most of you work in a VUCA environment. Right? So we don't know what's gonna happen, which means we have to be prepared to flex. We don't have a lot of time to think about that. The way we buy ourselves that time is to practice and prepare ahead of time. So certainly we practice what we're actually going to do, right? to the point where it becomes 
muscle memory, essentially. But the other thing we do is we plan ahead of time for anything and everything that we think could go wrong. And we think about that before there's stress put on us. So like I said, there's a brief. In a flight brief or in any other kind of operational brief, you talk about here's plan A. If everything goes according to plan, this is how this whole thing is gonna play out. Here's all the things that could possibly go wrong that we can think of right now, and here's our plan for handling those. And you drill that over and over again, and you talk about it so that in those moments, when one of those things possibly happens, we've already thought about it, and we have that mind space to be agile and pivot as we need to. So thinking about it ahead of time, really helpful trait for us. The other thing we do is as soon as we land, we come back, we debrief the whole thing. We talk about every single thing that just happened. What went the way we thought it was gonna go? What didn't go the way that we thought it was gonna go? How did we handle it? What did we learn? How can we do it better the next time? So it's this very healthy debrief practice. So we practice, we train every day, we brief everything that happens, we brief all possible scenarios, and then on the back side of it, we debrief everything. So when I think about what it is that we can learn from the military, first and foremost, keep the mission in focus. Because everything we do is guided by a purpose for that, whatever that exercise is in that moment, right? So we come back to the mission, that's our first kind of objective landing place where we can get rid of that extra story. We trust the preparation and training we've had, plan for all of, all of the possible scenarios that we can imagine. We don't dwell on outcomes. Dwelling on outcomes takes time and takes mind space that's not helpful for us in that moment, right? We, we need to have that, that flexibility and that adaptability. And then we learn from everything that happens, and it's this iterative process. So thinking about all that in your books, the first question I have for you here, and I'd love for you just to take a few minutes to jot down some thoughts and some notes on it, Reflect on a time you had a minimal, you had minimal time to recover from a setback and had to refocus quickly. What allowed you to do so and what was your thought process then? So thinking if, if a situation comes to mind where you had to think on your feet pretty quickly, what worked for you in that moment? So take a few minutes just to kind of jot some notes for yourself. In case anyone was wondering, this is the table to sit at because they have an open stock of M&Ms in the middle of it. <laughs> If any of you are hungry or need a sugar hit, come on up to this table. VUCA, V-U-C-A, stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous. No problem. So take a moment just to finish up whatever thought you have down. And then I'd love to hear an example or two of what people thought of. So a time that you had to recover quickly from a setback and specifically what you think in that moment allowed you to do that. I saw you all writing stuff down. Great example. Yeah. Awesome examples. And I, I should say, I'm really humbled to be in this room with all of you. How many of you in the room are in the fire service? Or first responders? And yeah, thank you all very much for what it is that you do because I hear stuff like this and I'm just reminded about how dangerous it is and, and what you do on a daily basis for the, for the good of everyone else. So thank you very much for that. All right, we're gonna shift gears. So I said military is one of my formative influences and I think I learned a lot from being in the military. The key thing being that, that kind of time urgency and having to recover quickly. The next big one for me is sport. So sport is, also a VUCA environment. It bears a lot of similarity to the military, frankly. Um, things are, no game plan survives the first whistle. You go into a game, you've already pre-planned for it, right? You've maybe, depending on the sport, you've watched film on your opponent, you have a sense for what your game plan is. You might have two, three, four different game plans. 
and then all of a sudden the whistle blows and things are underway and everything, maybe it goes according to plan, rarely does that happen. Uh, I coached for a number of years, I played, lacrosse was my sport, and I can tell you that I think in all of the years that I coach, I don't think I, ever, I had one game that went exactly according to plan. So you have to be able to flex and adapt quickly. But the thing about sport is that it's, it bears similarly to the military in that you don't have time to dwell because you could lose on Saturday and have to play again on Tuesday or have to play again on Wednesday. So your opportunity to focus and lament the loss on Saturday is small um, if you want to continue to move forward. What I like about sport in particular is that when we lose on Saturday, it doesn't matter. We still have a chance to win a championship. So it forces you to put things in perspective in a slightly different way. Just It's this idea of you can lose the battle but win the war, very much the case. And so when I think about this, I, I wanted to share the story. So I work at Hopkins now. Um, how many of you are from the Maryland area? Okay, so generally probably have heard of Hopkins. How many of you have never heard of lacrosse before? See, it's growing. It's the fastest growing sport in America. Um, so Hopkins is very well known for lacrosse. Um, it is our, kind of our signature sport, particularly on the men's side. So what you see here is a photo from last year, the last game of the regular season. Hopkins plays its rival, Maryland. And this is a very heated rival in front of a crowd of 10,800 people. And we lost in triple overtime. So we lost eight to seven, triple overtime. What's that? I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. Um, Actually, I'm somewhat conflicted because I grew up in Maryland and I had two uncles that played Maryland lacrosse. Um, but in the end of the, at the end of the day, my loyalty resides with that one, that which, that who pays my paycheck and signs my paycheck. So, uh, so Hopkins it is, go Jays. Um, so we lost triple overtime, right? Brutal, brutal. In front, it was homecoming. That big a crowd, lose to your rival, and to play somebody to three, three overtimes is not a common thing in any sport, much less lacrosse. So really tough. A week later, literally, a week later, we found ourselves at the University of Michigan playing in the Big Ten tournament, and it turns out we won the whole tournament, and therefore a bid into the NCAA tournament, because we beat, say it with me, Maryland. We beat Maryland by three, right? That was in a week's time, in a week's time. So when I say it was brutal for these guys to lose to their rival in triple overtime, that's, that's an understatement, right? But they were able to pick themselves up, put together a new game plan, come back at it literally a week later, and beat that same rival by three, which is a decisive victory in lacrosse. Not a huge one, but it's a decisive victory. Um, and we were the Big Ten champions. Everything literally shifted in the course of a week. Did our personnel change? Nope. Did theirs? Nope. We just came up with a different game plan, and we decided to go into it with a different mindset. The way I tend to phrase this is make the next play. So a lot of times what I talk to athletes about is this idea that whatever's just happened, we have to let go because we can no longer control or affect it. The only thing we can control or affect is what's directly in front of us. And in the context of athletics, that's the very next play that you have to make. And so a lot of times if an athlete misses a shot or doesn't perform the way that they think they should in a given moment, you'll see them, right? You can see it. Who's watching March Madness right now? All right, well, you should. It's fun, right? Okay, so March Madness, basketball tournament. Some guy thinks he's gonna make this shot, he doesn't make it, immediately you'll see him. The shoulders drop, the head drops, he's frustrated. In that moment, he's no longer in the game. He's in his head, no longer in the game. What he needs to be thinking about is what's the very next play I'm gonna make? Am I gonna go after that rebound? Am I gonna get the ball, pass it to a teammate? Am I gonna move over here so that I'm now open for a second chance? 
Am I going to get back on defense? Yeah, I hope so, right? But you got to make the next play. So speaking of March Madness, and I choose this one for a reason, how many of you ever watched at least the national championship game of March Madness? It's like the biggest thing on TV on that given night, right? So maybe. Okay, so was it three years ago now? 2016, Villanova, UNC, tied, 4.7 seconds left, and Villanova had been leading at this point uh, for a good portion of that, that second half, um, and then they let UNC back in it. So they let UNC back in it, UNC ties them up. Now we have, well, you can see the clock right here. 4.5 seconds left on the clock. So what I want to play you is this last 4.5 seconds and what happens. So you'll see right here, ball starts right here. So pay attention to this guy and pay attention to that guy. So he comes down, he passes it to his open buddy, scores the three, Villanova wins, we're all going to Disney World, life is great, right? So here's the thing about that. So people see this, and they, they saw it unfold, and they thought that was amazing. Buzzer beater, like classic. Villanova won it in the last four and a half seconds of the game. False. Villanova won that game every single day of that season by the way that they practiced and trained, in particular with their mindset. So as it turns out, and I'll let it loop uh, one, one more time, and then I'll pause it so I can kind of walk you through the play. So OK, be done celebrating. Okay. Oh, stop. Okay. Well, we're going to stop it right there. We're, we're going to imagine. Okay. So Ryan Archidiakno brings the ball down. He was the one the play was designed for. He was supposed to take the shot. They wanted the ball in his hands. He brings it down. Defenders are like, no way that's happening. They slide to him. So the way the play was drawn up, there was another guy who was open who was coming across this way. That was supposed to be the second option. So they planned for this. Option number one, Ryan. Ryan wasn't open, which they anticipated could be a thing. Option number two, backcourt. What they didn't plan for was Chris Jenkins, who's the guy who actually took the shot, who comes down and is wide open right next to Ryan. Ryan makes a decision in the moment. He passes it to Chris. Chris makes the shot. OK. That was lucky. Not so much. So when I started to peel this back, they obviously called a timeout to figure out what they were going to run. You know, everybody's preparing for this last play. They call the timeout, and they say to the Villanova guys, well, what did you say in the timeout? And they said, nothing. What do you mean, nothing? You didn't draw up a play? That we knew what play we were going to run. They practiced that play every single day of that season. Every single day of that season, and 50%, more than 50% of the time in practice, it did not work. Didn't work. Yet in this moment, they didn't even discuss it. They knew that's the one we're going to run. Maybe it's going to work, maybe it's not. That's the one we're going to run. They had a very confident mindset going into that. Now, here's the thing about Chris Jenkins, the guy who actually took the shot. In none of those scenarios was he the guy who took the shot. Right? They designed it for Ryan, and they designed it for the guy at the backcourt. That's how it was supposed to work. They didn't design it for Chris. So now we have this opportunity. We give the ball to Chris. We have the confidence in our teammate. He nails that shot. They say, Chris, what did you think? Did you think that shot was going to go in? His response was, I think all my shots are going in. He had that kind of confidence. And part of that is because it turned out that he practiced that exact shot from that spot all summer long. Literally took thousands of reps at that. Didn't work most of the time. And yet here we are on the biggest stage in college basketball to win it all for the national championship. And collectively, they knew this is the play we're running. I have no problem passing it to him. He's going to take the shot. And this is what happens. 
And so for me, the big takeaway, and I've seen this on teams after teams after teams, your mindset is everything. If you don't believe that you can do it, and, wh and where does that confidence come from, right? And I'm not being Pollyanna about this. Like, you can do it. No, it's not that. They got it from preparing. And they got it from preparing in a way that allowed them that even when they didn't do it correctly or they didn't succeed, they knew they were somehow getting better. So that confidence came from preparation and from trying and iterating on things over and over and over again. And they knew that maybe it's gonna work, maybe it's not, but they had gotten them to that, themselves to that place from a standpoint of resilience where it was okay either way, but they trusted their training and their preparation. And in this case, it went, it went their way. Last big piece from sport. So all of you have played sports in here, it looked like. How many of you have ever sustained an injury in sport? Yeah, it sucks. How many of you have ever torn an ACL? How many of you have torn three of them? Overachiever, right here. Uh, we, we don't, we're not born with three. I got, I got an extra along that deal. Um, so injuries are, some, are a very real thing that plagues sports teams. And the thing that we can learn about this is the reality is that we train our stars on our sports teams. We expect them to stand up and make great plays and do all this wonderful stuff for us. But we also train their replacements. Because on any given day, something could go wrong, somebody could step on a foot the wrong way, Zion Williamson, I'm going back to college basketball again, could have a shoe blow up on him, right? And all of a sudden, our star is injured. And the reality is in those moments, we don't have the option to just fold and not play anymore. There's gotta be a next man up, right? Next woman up, next man up, next person up. So it's the idea that on any given day in sport, we expect that there's somebody who's coming behind us that's gonna take our spot. And we build teams around this idea of redundancy. And this became so paramount and illustrated, particularly from the leadership standpoint, very recently for me. So this is Hopkins football. Um, how many of you didn't even know Hopkins had a football team? Yeah, I feel like we, we don't get a lot of love. We went to the Final Four this year, so that, I mean, we're good. Um, so this is Hopkins football. Really proud, long tradition. This is Jim Margraff. Jim Margraff, head coach of Hopkins football. Had, he was a, he's a grad of Hopkins. He's in our Hall of Fame. Uh, he was an incredible quarterback. And he came, to head coach 29 years. When he took over the program, they were literally one and nine. Uh, they were terrible. I just got to Hopkins a couple years ago. When I got there, one of the first things I was told is this team, our seniors graduate without ever losing a game on their home field. Um, most of them graduate without ever losing a game in the regular season. So five regular season games has been lost by this program in the last eight years. It's pretty good, right? Um, this, this particular, this, this past season, uh, we had the best program in history, um, in, in the history of our program. And by that, I mean 12 wins in a season. We went to the NCAA Final Four. Jim Margraff was named National D3 Coach of the Year. Um, unfortunately, he was named it posthumously because January 2nd rolled around, we all came back to work after the holidays and he didn't wake up that day. And when I say that that was a devastating thing, that was a devastating thing. It was devastating to me personally because when I, I adored that man, he was a mentor and a friend to me, but it was devastating to this program. He had built this program to be what it was. It was molded in his image. He was that leader. And we were really scrambling. We didn't know what plan B was in that given moment. But it turned out that he had primed his team for resilience because he and I had had conversations about it during the time that we worked together and I directly oversee football. And he'd always said, and I, I kid you not, and it was the words 
were just a little too eerie for me on that particular day, but he said, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, here's what you do. And he said that to me multiple times, such that I said to him, could we please stop talking about you getting hit by a bus? And he said, okay, fine, if I don't wake up tomorrow, here's what you do. And it turned out that what he did was mold this guy to take over. So this is Greg. Greg is now our new head football coach. We went through a national search. Greg clearly emerged from that pool. Um, and we've hired Greg. Greg is a Hopkins alum. Greg played under Coach Margraff. Greg coached under Coach Margraff for 10 years. And in that time, Coach knew exactly what he was doing because he knew that there could, be, there could come a day when he wasn't at the helm. And he wanted to make sure that Greg was well positioned to take over and he did a great job. I didn't give him enough credit for it at the time because I didn't even want to think about that outcome. But when I think about what sport does, sport plans for redundancy. Sport plans for people to graduate. I mean, at the end of the day, particularly in college teams, right, the athlete's with you for four years, and you're losing them at that point. So you have to have a plan B. But they also plan for how to pivot on short notice. And from a leadership perspective, what Coach Margraff did is he wanted to make sure that he wasn't the reason that that program maintained that level of success, that there was always an opportunity for somebody to step in and continue the level of success. So we planned for redundancy. So on that note, your next two questions really focus on what we can learn from sport. So the key takeaways in my mind, I would summarize this way. Keep your season goals in focus, but not, not just the individual games. So it's this idea that you can lose on Saturday but still win a championship literally a week later. Prepare for one game at a time. So we're taking just that one, one game, make the next play, Mind your mindset. So be, be thoughtful about the confidence level that you're bringing into something. Win at practice, not just in games, but win at practice every day, and then the concept of next man up. So how are you creating redundancy? So your two questions that follow on just after the one that you did, reflecting on a time you believe a confident mindset, or maybe a lack of a confident mindset, shifted the outcome of a situation that you or your team faced what you learned from that and how it has impacted your actions since then, if at all. And then how are you creating redundancy in your team's leadership and in what ways? So take a few minutes to think on that. How'd we do? Got some ideas? Or at least the start of some ideas? Who's got one around the, the mindset piece? Either a time a confident mindset helped you or a time you didn't have one and it impacted things. How about redundancy? Any of you do anything currently that you feel like is preparing you for redundancy in your team's leadership? It's a, it's a great, great place to start. Were you going to say something? No. You just grab your, your, in your, all good. Um, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And when, have, have you found that, that when you have to teach somebody else, you learn it in a whole new way? and you have to understand it from other folks' perspective, yeah, that's a huge one. Other thoughts or ideas? Okay, so by the way, and I should have said this at the beginning, so what we're doing by kind of recording these thoughts along the way, so I'm giving you the framework to take back to your teams to decide which of these pieces you wanna go more into depth with in terms of where do you wanna focus on working with them. So what we're gonna shift to now, I kinda, to start, I wanted to give you kind of broad scale context for what my thinking is around this. But now we're gonna to shift to more of kind of the real kind of roadmap piece. And 
I think of things, I'm a, very, I'm a left brain person all the way, so I like things to have structure and order, so I like frameworks. So this is my best guess at what a framework looks like for, for building resilience. And it is, in my mind, cyclical. Um, so it is something that we should think of and approach with the idea that you never know at what stage you're entering, but we plan to iterate on it and continue to improve it. So I think it can look this way. And we're going to talk through each of these, and you're going to have a chance to kind of reflect for yourself on each of these. But first steps first, we plan to fail. So we got to fail, and in advance of that, we're going to plan to fail and give ourselves some, some skills and some thinking around that. Next step, next step, feel the feels. And by that, I mean there's often an emotional reaction to setbacks, challenge, adversity, whatever happens. Um, we have to give ourselves time and space to process that and allow ourselves to feel that. If we try to brush through that or talk ourselves through that or away from that, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're not really fueling the resilience that we need. Come back to the mission. Um, so resetting with that objective piece, putting the mission first, getting our mindset right, so mindset matters, and then the last piece is failing forward, meaning we take that first step forward in our new positive direction. And then once we've taken that step forward, the whole cycle may repeat again, and we have no idea how many times. So if we start with just step one, this idea of planning to fail. So there is in your book, and we're gonna walk through this. So I'll, I'll kind of highlight what I think the process is and then give you some time to think about it at your tables. So something you want to achieve, whatever it is. Maybe it's the actual mission that you're going to do. Maybe it's a personal goal that you have. Maybe it's a team goal that has nothing to do with necessarily professional life, whatever that is. Whatever your end goal is, putting that down and then imagining that you don't get there and just listing, like brainstorming, all the possible reasons why you might not get there. So an example I use a lot with athletes is, you know, we want to win this game. Okay, fine. What are all the possible reasons that could happen why you might not win that game? Oh, officiating could be bad, the weather could be bad, I could miss this pass, and they come up with this whole list of things. So from that list, whatever that list is, identify what your actual controllables are in that list. Because I'm going to guess that most, if not close to all of them, are going to be outside the scope of your control. And then the last piece is identifying your assumptions. So what are we assuming when we go into this situation? What are we taking for granted when we go into this situation? And we talk about this idea of controllables, and you'll hear from him tomorrow, but Coleman Ruiz, so just remember that name, because you'll hear from him tomorrow. He's a superstar. Those three words I got from him many years ago um, as the three things that we can control. And I have not found a better way to remember what, what's really within our control beyond those three. So for my money, they're pretty battle-tested. But your process, your attitude, and your effort really are the things that are within your control. So to the extent that we plan to fail and we can identify things that are within those three, that's where we focus our energy. And I'll talk more about that after you've had a chance to reflect. But otherwise, the rest of it, we have to start to train ourselves to let go. Right, because our energy is this, we can always grow and, and develop energy, but for those of you who are science nerds in the room like me, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. And so the best thing we can do is manage it effectively. And so in my mind, the way we manage it effectively is we direct it towards things that are actually within our control. So in your books, I'd love for you on that kind of that next section under planning to fail, list a personal or a team goal that you have. And then list, do that brain dump. List all the possible reasons why you might not achieve it, or as many as you can come up with in the context of this room right now. And then once you have that list of all the possible things that could derail you, then go back 
and circle the ones that are actually controllable, i.e. the ones that fall into this idea of process, attitude, and effort, those three buckets. For those who want to work ahead, if you've already gotten your list down, you can go ahead and list any assumptions you might have. But the last question is a homework question, so just don't skip ahead to the homework one, but if there are assumptions that come to mind, it's all right. I love an overachiever. How many of you have your controllables circled? Okay, so how many controllables are we talking about? Where did you land with how many you actually had at the end? You had one? How many had more than one? More than one, what'd you have? Three? Three. Anybody have more than three? Okay, so when you think about this, whenever you're planning to go into something, we talk about this idea of like creating mind space, right? So mind space is where we can actually start to, that resilience process. One of the first things we can do is, as we forecast what could possibly happen, doesn't it feel less overwhelming to, re to worry about three things or less than three things than it does to worry about that entire list that you put down there? <coughs> I think so. And so that's one of the first ways we can start to help really focus our energies on what it is we need to do to move forward, is by reducing that list of controllables and then focusing our energy specifically there. What kind of assumptions did you make? For those who got to the assumptions question, what kind of assumptions did you make? Either about the process itself or about the outcome of whatever your goal was, right? Always a safe assumption to make, I think, because then you can be pleasantly surprised if there are not, right? So kind of flipping this into the athletics context, you know, winning, winning, uh, winning this game or losing this game means I, we won't win the championship. Most of the time that's not really true. Or winning this game means that this will happen. Again, most of the time not necessarily true. But it's important for us to build in a practice of bring awareness to the assumptions that we make about whatever it is that, we, that means something to us that we want to pursue. All right, we ready for step two? Step two, so I should come back. So the, the last question on there, for each controllable, that's your homework question. So that's something for you to think about in terms of what's, what's one thing you could do to hedge against that? So um, again, I'll come back to the athletics context. We wanna win um, the championship next year, and one of the things that could go wrong is that people might not work out over the summer when we're not on campus. Okay, so then what's one thing we could do to try to hedge against something like that, which is part of our process, which is within our control? We could devise an accountability system for making sure people are doing what they're doing and then they can work on something like that. So that's what I mean when I say think of one thing for each of those controllables that you have, and it doesn't need to be big, but just one thing you can do to put in place something in advance of that scenario that might help you hedge against it. All right, so second step, feel the feels. So rule number one in this, in my mind, is lament, okay? Feel, when something goes wrong, it is human nature, we feel bad about that, right? So lament that something has not gone your way, but set a timer, and by that I mean don't allow yourself to kind of stay in that place forever. And there's no defined period of time that this is gonna be appropriate. This is relative to individuals and situations. There are things that go wrong that we are gonna feel bad about for all of five seconds, and there are things that go wrong that are gonna blow us back and we're gonna feel bad about for a long time. But the key is to, in your mind, mentally say, I'm gonna give myself till tomorrow to feel bad about this, and then I'm back at it. 
right? Set an endpoint to that. Allow there to be some type of timer there. And again, I want to caveat this by saying I'm not a mental health professional and I'm not talking about the horrific tragedies that befall us in life. So for those, I, I don't know what the right timer is and I'm also not the person to advise around that. But for kind of your everyday setbacks, things that don't go well, these are the things that I'm thinking we set ourselves, we give ourselves a relative time limit. We, we create a boundary around it. Recognize that the feeling of disappointment is affirmation that you're in, truly invested in something. So see that disappointment as a positive thing. Um, it validates your emotional investment in whatever it is you're pursuing. Be mindful. So I said in the beginning, yoga was one of my formative influences in all of this. This is one of the areas in which it comes to light. So when we are feeling these feelings, can we put a name to them, A, and B, can we ask ourselves why it is that we think we're feeling that way? Very often, we blow through it, we know we feel like crap, we don't really understand why, but we don't take the time to just actually try to bring a consciousness and awareness to what it is that we're feeling. I'm feeling sadness right now, and I'm feeling sadness because I think, right, whatever that is, or I'm feeling sadness because I feel like I've disappointed someone or something along those lines. But that mindful piece is really helpful in moving through this kind of emotional stage of it. And then the last piece, and really that ties to the mindfulness piece is, what stories are you writing about your experience? Well, I'm feeling sad about this because I realize that if we lost today, then that means that there's no way that we're going to win next week and you start to spiral downhill, right? We start to write these mental stories in our mind about what this outcome therefore means. I'm here to tell you that the majority of stories we write are complete fabrications, right? Our mind likes to do it because we have to rationalize and, and do these things, but the reality is the majority of stories we write are complete fabrications and are not grounded in truth at all. So if we could catch ourselves in the act of doing it, if we can frame it as the story I'm telling myself right now is and frame it as a story, we can take a step back and start to see that maybe we don't need to emotionally invest ourselves in that story because that's the other problem that happens. We write the stories in our mind and then we get emotionally invested in those and it keeps us in this phase longer than we really probably need to be. So with that said, next assignment in your workbook, take some time to think about what a setback feels like to you. So, and we all experience this very differently, right? But what does it feel like mentally? Like, does it feel like chaos? Does it feel depressive? What does it feel like physically? I know, like, when something doesn't go my way, a lot of times I just get that pit of the stomach feeling, um, almost a borderline nausea. That's me, may not be you, but I think very often we experience it physically. Um, so just thinking through how you typically experience it, and then the, the following question is, how are you currently creating time and space for you personally or for your team to kind of process emotion in the face of setback? And I'm not suggesting that there has to be something formal around this, but I think it's worth thinking about how we currently do that. Do you personally have a reflection process? Are you a person that compartmentalizes and, and just puts it over here and doesn't want to acknowledge it? Whatever it is, just own it for yourself so you really start to bring awareness to what your current practices are. Likewise with teams. Do we all sit in a room and debrief something and talk about things? Do I have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and ask them how they're feeling about it? Do I not ask them at all? Whatever that looks like, just give thought to it and then make yourself some notes. The last question on there is going to be your homework question. But did anybody put something down where it feels good? Yeah, I was gonna guess that that was probably not the case. So for all of us, we tend to experience this in a negative way. So part of this process for us is we have to allow ourselves to experience the negative with the understanding that we're gonna take a step forward in a couple steps here, and we're gonna reframe it, um, and we're gonna shift 
kind of what we're feeling physically or mentally that may be negative into a more optimistic outlook. So how, what are people currently doing to create space for yourselves to process this kind of stuff or for your teams? Anybody do anything explicit in that regard? Is that nobody wants to participate or nobody's doing anything? Yeah. How many of you are meditators? Highly recommend it. Um, a lot of great apps out there and meditation, if nothing else, it builds that mindfulness piece. It forces you to really start to gain an awareness for what it is you're feeling in a given moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really good advice because oftentimes we lose that perspective piece so that helps to put it back in perspective. All right, so that the last question on there, um, which I think is at the top of your next page, so asks you to think about what barriers you personally face in processing emotion um, and then list one or more things you could do to start to soften those barriers. So again, that's something for you to take away and to think about. I think it's worth giving time and space to. Um, I know for me this has been a like a, a process of personal growth. So, you know, 20 years ago, no part of emotion ever. I don't, I don't want it, I don't need it, and it turns out eventually it comes back to get you. Um, and so to the extent that we can start building kind of healthy relationship with it and just the ability to step back from it and acknowledge it for what it is makes all the difference in the world in terms of our ability to be productive. All right, so we've planned to fail. We failed, we're disappointed, we're allowing ourselves to feel and experience that, but then it comes time to start to think about how we take our next steps forward. So this is where I come back to the idea of mission. And mission is a word I use, it's kind of a default just because of kind of how I came up through things. Um, but I, you could use purpose, you could use meaning here, whatever it is that's at the core of what it is that you are doing that matters to you is what I would, how I would define mission in this context. So steady force that guides all of your actions. So the first step, honestly, is to ask yourself, like, what, what is my mission? And that might be a tactical mission in the moment. That might be a personal or an emotional mission, whatever it is. But what is that purpose, meaning, mission for you? How could you lose the battle but win the war? So it's that kind of perspective taking. Um, this idea that this is a setback, but does this mean that everything else is lost? Probably not. Um, so starting to think through what that could look like and then compartmentalizing when you need it. And by this I mean sometimes these things can feel real overwhelming. And so when in those moments where it feels overwhelming, break it into chunks and manage it one step at a time as opposed to trying to deal with the overall thing all at once. So when you look at your papers here, just one question here, how do you remind your team the mission. What are your current practices? Is it something you talk about routinely? Is it something you talk about kind of pre and post? Is it something they're responsible for memorizing? Whatever that is, just give yourself a moment to think about how do you currently remind your team of whatever that mission is? Or even yourself, if we're talking about you as an individual. How do you remind yourself? And if you're looking ahead in your notebooks, you're going to see that, that there's two pages left, but really it's a trick because that right page is all homework. So you're, on, you're there, you're on the home stretch. So thanks for hanging in. What are some things we do to keep the mission at the forefront? How do we do this with ourselves? How do we do it with our teams? Okay? Yep, I like it. Um, I've seen literally, and this is like not in the context of your world necessarily, but a lot of times teams will have mission statements, and I know that sounds kind of cheesy and like 1990s business era. Um, 
voodoo. Um, but they're real simple, and they bring people back to why, what they exist. So like almost in the form of mantra. So I'll go back to Hopkins football. Hopkins football, pride and poise. Those are their two core values, and they talk about it all the time. It is on everything that they do. That is their purpose for being. So at the end of the day, it's great when they win games, but it's more important to them that they exhibit pride in everything they do and that they're poised in the face of, of difficulty. And those are the two things that mean the most to them, and they say it all the time. They're like bombarded with it. And so with that, that's one way in which they kind of keep that at the forefront, and they keep their priorities up there. All right, so let's talk about the mindset piece of it. There's this idea, and I, I appreciate that in recent years, I think the word failure has become less of a negative, and I'm really grateful for that. But I think we need to reframe the idea of failure and really about outcomes in general. I think we tend to think of outcomes in a very binary way. So you either win or you lose, you pass or you fail. There's kind of an either or. I think failure is feedback. I think that's what it is. I think it tells you that what you just did didn't work the way you intended, period, the end. Right? And it gives you an opportunity to reattack when you think of failure in that way. So reframing failure as feedback, first and foremost. Striving for non-attachment to outcomes. How many of you in here have had your life work out exactly the way you would have planned? <sighs> yeah, never works that way, huh? But how many of you here are living a life that you couldn't have imagined that's turned out to be exceedingly awesome? Yeah, I hope most of us feel that way at some point, right? So. I'll go back to when I was 14, all I wanted to do was then become a fighter pilot like in Top Gun. And then I went through flight school and got my butt kicked a little bit and then finally got there and got assigned to FA-18 Hornets and everything was amazing and that's, that's who I was. And within six months of getting that assignment, I had that assignment taken away because those migraines that I talked to you about, turns out they're medically disqualified. And flying, just like that, boom, ripped out from under me had no alternative identity. That was the only thing that I'd ever wanted to do or be with my life, and I spent a long time. You talked about that idea of lamenting and setting the timer. I didn't set a timer, and I languished for a long time, frankly, quite lost, because I didn't know who I was or what I was supposed to be, because I had put so much attachment to that outcome, I didn't know what to do with myself. And over time, I've learned from that. It been a painful learning process, but you know, I've landed in college athletics, which it turns out the job that I have now is not a job I even knew existed when I was in college. It is amazing. I love my job. I love what I do. And when I think about it, I think had I had that outcome worked out the way that it would, that I originally intended, if I had I would I would still be flying right now. But here I am. And now people ask me, well, what do you want to be? Like, what's the end goal for you? And for me, I'll say I want to be a college athletics director but I'm not willing to pursue that at the expense of my own identity anymore. So at any point, I reserve the right to say, yep, I'm good right here, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, maybe I will never do that, because I realize what it is when we attach ourselves so much to an outcome, and then that outcome doesn't come to pass, and that was not a happy place. Um, it was a place that ultimately helped me to build some resilience, but it was not a happy place. Um, so striving for non-attachment to outcomes, taking outcomes kind of at face value and looking at them in terms of what the opportunity is on the back side of that. Um, and we'll talk about that in the next step. Seeking honesty. So find, we all should have at least one person in our life that I would refer to as a truth teller. Somebody that you know that is not gonna sugarcoat things with you and is just gonna tell it to you like it is, even if that's unpleasant. Find your truth teller. This is a big one for me. So the idea of meaning, what something means, is a human invention. 
we decide what something means, right? And with that, it's incredibly empowering when we think about it that way because then we can choose whether we attach a positive meaning to it or attach a negative meaning to it. And I just was reading an article yesterday. The Cleveland Clinic did a story or did a study, and essentially the average person has 60,000 thoughts a day. It's a lot, 60,000. 95% of those thoughts are repeat thoughts. So you have the same 95% of those 60,000 every single day. 80% of those are negative. So think about that for a second. And I don't know if that rings true for you as individuals, but 60,000 thoughts a day, 95% of which are repeated day to day, and 80% of those are negative. We gotta change that. If we're gonna build resilience, we gotta change that. And the beauty is we have the power to do that because we get to choose what stuff means, whether it's positive or negative. So choose wisely. And the last piece is we find what we're looking for. If you are looking for the negative, if you are looking for the reason something won't work, that is all you're going to see. If you are looking for the opportunities, they're gonna miraculously jump out amid chaos. So when we reframe our mindset that way, and we think about what, what it is we're looking for, we're gonna see more of it, it's just natural. So back to your papers. What challenges do you and your team face in fostering that resilient mindset? That's the only question I want you to answer right now. The second one will be homework. So when you look at this list up here, what jumps out at you is something where your team might be challenged around that? Or things that are not on this list, just in terms of the mindset in general. What challenges are we currently facing? How many of you are dealing with kind of what they will, they will refer to as kids today? where they haven't failed as much, or this is what the, the thinking is, they haven't failed as much, they feel entitled, all of that. Is that a thing that's happening in your world? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a barrier to resilience because by and large, their skills and, and tools for being resilient are not what they were 20 years ago. So that's definitely a barrier and obstacle. What else? Yep, um, Coach Bargraf, who I showed you earlier, uh, one of the things I loved about his approach was he would say over and over again, there's a difference between winning and good football. And for a program like ours that wins most of the time, you can get real comfortable real quick thinking, well, we won, we did great. And part of why I think we were as continually successful as we are um, is because there was a difference between good football and winning, and the emphasis was always on good football. Yep. Yep, I agree. I don't think social media helps us in general with resilience, if I'm being totally honest, because I think it fosters a comparative mindset. So we're looking at everybody else and we're comparing our own personal existence to everybody else's and it becomes real easy to decide that we're worse off than they are and therefore all hope is lost. That's a, that's a big leap there, but essentially you see where I'm going with that. Um, coming at that and being bombarded with all those external messages I think is something that we deal with now that we didn't previously deal with that does not help us um, become resilient. All right, so your homework on that one um, is just thinking of one thing that you could do every day to start practicing a resilient mindset, either you personally or encouraging your team to do it. Just one small thing. Smaller is always better in this regard. The key with it, again, it's a skill, right? We've got to practice it every day when we don't necessarily need it, and we've got to practice it in small ways that over time get us to big dividends. All right, failing forward. We've gone through all of that, now we need to take our step forward. So after action review or a debrief I think is huge. Being accountable 
So whether that's you're accountable for results as a group or you're accountable as individuals or both, but making sure that you're accountable for whatever it is that you're facing and going to move forward with. Looking for the opportunities. And literally, it may be, you may need to sit down with your group and say, what are the opportunities from here on out? And get them to think through what the possibilities really are. Mapping the path a step at a time. So all you need to decide is what's the next step. And then after that, you can figure out what the step is after that, but just figure out what the next step is. Operating from your strengths, connected to the mission. So this is your last piece on here. I'm gonna actually make that uh, homework because I wanna make sure that we end on time and I wanna get through two more quick things. So under failing forward, I've asked you about your current debrief practices whether or not you think they're effective and what could be changed to make them more effective, highly recommend you take some time to think about that. And then how you assign accountability for outcomes. So do you as a group take responsibility? Do you have individuals take responsibility for different elements? Is it a combination? But just thinking through that, and again, no right answer there, but it's just important for us to think about how we are assigning accountability because we can't go anywhere in this if we're not accountable. And then the last piece on that is how you can work together as a team to develop what that next step is. How do you make that a process as a team to come up with that? <coughs> All right, so this right here um, comes from the world of marketing. This is the Gartner hype cycle, and this was built by Gartner's a market research firm. Um, this was built essentially to map when a new technology is introduced, what it looks like, how it's received, right? So we invent the technology down here and everybody's super excited about it and we get to what is called the peak of inflated expectations. And then it turns out it's not as awesome as we thought it was and now we're in the trough of disillusionment. And then from there we start with thinking about, well, maybe it could be okay. We get to the slope of enlightenment and eventually to the plateau of productivity. So your job as leaders in this whole resilience thing is to smooth out that curve. It's to get us from the trigger here, whatever that is, whatever initially sparks our excitement, to that plateau of productivity and minimize, in my mind, the resilience piece is minimizing how steep this part is. So if I map the framework to that, something awesome happens, but we're not gonna get too excited. We're gonna plan to fail first before we get too excited. We get to the peak of inflated expectations, something doesn't go right, we're on the way down. We gotta let ourselves feel that on the way down. When we get to that, when we bottom out, whenever that is, that's when we come back to our mission and our mindset and then we take our steps forward to get to that plateau of productivity. So visually, this is what I think it looks like. Last piece, and this is all homework, this is your last sheet. In any of this, we're called upon to help others be resilient in positions of leadership. We gotta take care of ourselves first. We have to lead ourselves first in this. So we can't coach it unless we practice it ourselves. We have to make it part of who we are as a leader, not something we just simply do when we think we need to. It's gotta be day-to-day -day part of who we are. When this happens, we have to check our own emotional reaction to things. Somebody may be coming to you struggling with something personal, and you may have experienced something personal and already start having emotional reactions because you're associating with, with whatever that individual is sharing with you. In that moment, as leaders, we have to check our own emotions and be as objective as possible and just receive the information that we're hearing to help the, someone else become resilient. And then we have to provide objective perspective. And again, it's that third party outside perspective, even though you may care tremendously, it might be a child who's struggling with this, trying to just give them objective information and help them to get there on their own. 
that last page is about you reflecting on your own oxygen mask, essentially, just as a heads up, so for your homework. All right, last piece. So I said yoga was that third formative influence. Huge believer in gratitude. So I taught yoga for many years, and this is how I ended every single class. Be thankful for all you are, all you have, and all you do, knowing it's always enough. And I took that from my teacher. The thing is, is with any of us, particularly in high-performing environments, we tend to be real hard on ourselves. We tend not to acknowledge that we're enough. We're usually pretty good about giving praise to others who may be doubting themselves, but we tend to be the hardest on ourselves. And I'm here to tell you that self-compassion is that last piece in building resilience that can unlock your performance. Sometimes you have to let yourself off the hook. We're not perfect, we never will be. We're works in progress. Doesn't mean you can't have high standards. Doesn't mean you can't work to be constantly getting better. It doesn't mean you can't expect a lot of yourself and others. But it means from time to time, you're gonna have to let yourself off the hook if you wanna actually start to foster this resilience. Failing to do that, failing to take a moment to be thankful for all you are and all that you have, is almost inevitably going to be a roadblock to building resilience. And so I like this last gratitude piece because the reality is at the end of the day, when we are feeling so stuck in that trough of disillusionment and it happens to us, one of the things that can spark us on the way back up is just connecting with something that we're really thankful for. And there's always something to be thankful for. So I leave that with you as kind of my parting advice in all of this. And it's the last piece on that page. But when you find yourselves in that moment where things are really, really tough, Find something to be thankful for. It may feel totally counterintuitive, but I guarantee it starts to shift that mindset piece for you. It starts to reframe things and give you perspective. So you have in your books there, this is what I call kind of like your outline and your roadmap, and I knew it was gonna be more than we were reasonably gonna to get to today, but I wanted you to have all these questions to think about because I think any one of them by itself or some small collection of them can be really helpful tools for you to use with your people. Because we have to build resilience in ourselves, but as leaders, we also have to make sure that we're giving them the opportunity as a team to grow and build resilience as a collective group. Any of these can be good conversation starters around how you want to start to move forward and shape things and practice things as a group. It can be useful as a diagnostic for you to figure out kind of where your, your team may be getting stuck right now and where they might need a little extra help. And that's what I'm here for. So if you use any of this stuff, I'm, I'm here as a resource to you. So my contact information is there. Reach out to me. If you need an idea like, hey, I know they're stuck here, but I don't know what the step is after that. I don't know what we should talk about to move them in the next direction. Get in touch with me. I'm glad to help. This is work that I truly believe in, and this is part of, I talked about kind of that idea, that mission, that meaning. I believe that my personal life's mission is to help others be at their best. And so when you call me and you need help with something, this is something that I want to do for you because this is what means the most to me. So just know that I'm available to you. Um, thank you all for your patience and your attention and your engagement right after lunch in a long session. I hope that you found that this stuff was helpful or at least resonated in, in, in part. I'm glad to entertain any questions you might have or I'm glad to let you get up out of your seats and go get more coffee and just move around. So entirely up to you. Great. Thank you. And if you're in Baltimore, come watch Hopkins Lacrosse. So she was a very engaging speaker, and a lot of Summit attendees found value in her presentation. Anything stand out to you, Jason? Yeah, I, when I think of Jen, she's, she's very confident. She's also incredibly 
humble, mm-hmm. given all of her life's accomplishments and just how talented and, and gifted she is. I mean, she, she's obviously a very intelligent and thoughtful leader. So Jen sets out to be a, a naval aviator, and it, it didn't really go according to plan, largely for reasons beyond her control. But I mean, here's somebody who is one of those high-achieving individuals that is accustomed to when they decide they're going to do something, they then only do it, but they do it very, very well. Like, they're exceptional at it. And her, her naval aviation career didn't quite go according to plan in that regard. And she kind of had to absorb those setbacks and micro failures and, and, and not performing to the, the level that she she's accustomed to. And it just kind of sent her in a different path in life, a, a, a different trajectory. And to see her articulate that she was able to really be better because of that obviously takes takes humility. That really resonated with me, and I think it resonated with, with many of the folks that were there. Yeah, that makes sense. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership